Well, good morning. It's nice to see all of you. If you would, uh, please open your Bibles and join me in John chapter 15. If you do not have a Bible, we'd love to get one to you. Please raise your hand and feel free to keep or leave this Bible on the seat when you leave this morning. We are continuing to follow Jesus together in the Gospel of John. We have finished John chapter 14. are jumping now into John 15, into one of the most well-known and well-loved passages of Scripture, Jesus' illustration of being the true vine. Because it is a well-known passage, we will be in this passage for a number of weeks picking up this diamond and turning it over in our hands to look at each facet of it to make sure that familiarity does not cause us to lose sight of many of the glorious things here. I'm going to read John 15 verses 1 to 17 to set the context because that is the complete context or the main context rather of what Jesus says. But our attention this morning is very specific. It is on five words, I am the true vine. And we'll be drilling deep into what Jesus means when he says that. Well, without further ado, if you would, look in your Bibles. And I'm going to read John 15, verses 1 through 17 to set it before us. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another. As I have loved you, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends." You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, 
and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Well, this is the word of God. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, you have set before us the word of Christ, this beautiful, amazing, well-known, well-loved, well-worn, and yet a bit confusing passage. And we pray then that your spirit would illuminate the text of Scripture, illuminate the words preached and proclaimed, and that our hearts would be faithful to respond in the power that you provide to believe your word, to believe you, Jesus, to believe that you are the true vine, to believe that the Father is the vine dresser, to believe that we are the branches, and as branches, we must abide. And to abide is to obey your word. And so we pray, Lord, that as we focus our attention on the magnificence of what you say here about Jesus, how Jesus says he's the true vine, that our hearts would be full of the joy of the Lord. To that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. Well, as I've already said, but it bears repeating, we come this morning to this well-loved and well-known passage. It's, it's well-worn. Perhaps the pages in your old Bible are a little bit darker because you've spent more time thinking about and considering what Jesus says when he says he is the true vine. The Father is the vine dresser, or the vine grower, and that we believers are branches. There are many questions that this passage puts before us. And so it's going to take us many weeks to work through it as we, as I said earlier, to turn this diamond over in our hands. But there is a danger for all of us as we approach this text. As with other texts, the twin dangers are familiarity and a loss of wonder. We can become so familiar with a text that it becomes sentimental in our hearts and it loses the impact. We almost can become blind to the nuance and detail in the passage because we're just so familiar with it. Jesus is the vine, the Father's the vine dresser, we're the branches. He prunes good fruit-bearing branches and he cuts off non-fruit-bearing dead branches and throws them into the fire and on we go. But there, we should not be familiar and we should also not lose the wonder. We should never get used to the treasure of words that Jesus unfolds before us in this beautiful illustration. So our aim this morning, as we begin our time in this illustration over these next weeks, our aim this morning is to reacquaint ourselves with the wondrous richness and sweeping grace. The sweeping grace of Jesus, that he is the true vine, the father, the vine dresser, and we are the branches. And our aim this morning is is hyper-focused and singular, we're going to latch on to those first words, I am the true vine. We're going to latch on to those words and we're going to squeeze what glad wine we can pull from these words that Jesus speaks. So if you're taking notes, here's the outline this morning, there's only one point, but it has three sub-points. You're welcome. 
So the one point is this, Jesus is the true vine, so abide in him. That's the point, and that really is the point all along. But the subpoints are these. What is the context of I am the true vine in the Gospel of John? Next, we will move into what is the Old Testament background for the vine, and then we will close our time with what is the gospel significance of Jesus being the true vine. Most of our time will be spent in the Old Testament. There's a number of passages that we're going to look at. I'm going to invite you to join me in your Bible to turn to those texts when we come to them. Well, without further ado, Jesus is the true vine, so abide in him. Please look in your Bibles at verse 1 and verse 5, and off we go. Jesus begins as he continues his upper room discourse with these disciples as he prepares to leave. Judas is out betraying him. Jesus is preparing to go out and meet the rule of the world who has nothing on him. And as he prepares to leave, he says this to the disciples. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. And verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Well, the first question we have then is, what is the context of Jesus saying, I am the true vine, and what is the context in the Gospel of John? If you have been traveling, if we've been following Jesus together with us, this is now the seventh and final famous I am statement of Jesus. It's the famous, or it's the seventh and final famous I am declaration of King Jesus here in the Gospel of John. Here are the ones that we have already seen. Jesus has said to us that he is, or I am, the bread of life in chapter 6. He said, I am the light of the world in chapter 8. He said, I am the door of the sheep and the good shepherd, both in chapter 10. He said, I am the resurrection and the life, after he in the context of raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. We heard him recently say that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me in chapter 14. And now here, I am the true vine in chapter 15. And, of course, the reason for which the Jews sought to stone him and kill him in chapter 8, Jesus said, before Abraham was... I am. And what we've seen over the weeks and months that we have been in John, each of these, Jesus is not only claiming to be the great I am who I am, the voice of Yahweh from the burning bush to Moses back in Exodus 3, Jesus is claiming to be that voice, claiming to be Yahweh incarnate, claiming to be the voice with skin on. But Jesus, in each of these I am statements, is doing something profound because he is further explaining who God is in Christ, the God-man. So Jesus is not merely trying to think of some nice, uh, quaint analogy to help you understand him. When God spoke to Moses in the burning bush and Moses asked the voice, who are you, Lord, that I can tell uh, the, your name to, the, to your people you're sending me to? God simply re replied, I am who I am. And it 
does beg the question, you are what? And that is what Jesus is doing here in the Gospel of John and other places with these I am statements. He is linking himself back to the beginning of our Old Testaments and that he is Yahweh with fl- in the flesh. He is the I am who I am. And we are learning that he is all of these things and more. And today, I am the true vine. And what we have seen in the past weeks and months is that each of these I am statements reaches back into the Old Testament. They have an Old Testament story, an Old Testament picture, an Old Testament context to them that then, by looking back in the Old Testament, point forward to the person and work of Jesus to help us understand who he is. And in all of these I am statements, as we look back to the Old Testament, there's an amazing discovery. The amazing discovery is that Jesus In himself, his person and work, Jesus is the intended end and goal and purpose for which all of those Old Testament pointers pointed. In other words, Jesus fulfills all of those Old Testament pictures and people and patterns. And now that Jesus is here, those Old Testament prototypes find their fulfillment in Jesus. He brings them to their intended goal and end. He brings them to their completion. So when Jesus is sitting there with the 11 and he's seeking to untrouble their hearts, and in chapter 14 of John, he gave them his peace. And now we, as I read at the beginning, he's about to give them his joy. It is tied to the reality that Jesus, in some way, in some fashion, is the end, goal, purpose, and completion of whatever it means that he is the true vine. And that leads then to the second and longest point of the message. What is the Old Testament background to Jesus saying he is the vine? So it's not as if you can... If you have access to commentaries, you can look through commentaries and there's a surprisingly and sad large number of commentators who say, well, Jesus may have left the room already and they're, they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Jesus, is, he sees vines growing and so that just kind of jogs his memory to think of giving an illustration of I am the true vine. That's true if there's no Old Testament. There's an Old Testament, so that's not true. What is the Old Testament background to the vine? Well, first of all, we must understand this. Vine imagery encompasses an integral aspect of the biblical storyline. Because as we read in John 15, you've got the vine, you've got branches, and you've got fruit. And the whole... um, uh, an image and picture of the vine, this garden imagery, is integral to the biblical storyline. We must remember that God began his gospel plan for the world by making a garden. And this garden was a paradise. And in this garden paradise, God walked. God, of all things that he could have made, he could have made a city. He could have made a concrete jungle. God made a garden. 
And he put the first man and woman in there, and he put, the Adam, put Adam in there to be the gardener. And in this garden of paradise, this garden of Eden, God walked. It was his arboreal temple palace, a garden. And the plan for humanity was to take this garden and expand it to the ends of the earth. And so much vine imagery, wine imagery, grape imagery in the Bible is associated with the beginning of the Garden of Eden and its expansion across Scripture. So vine imagery begins to uh, cultivate in our minds and remind us about the Garden of Eden. And so you fast forward. When God redeemed the nation of Israel from Egypt and he led them through the wilderness and brought them to the promised land, all the descriptors of the land of of what would become Israel were Edenic in nature. Do you remember when Joshua, or when they sent the spies into the land and Joshua and the others came back, what they brought? Heavy grapes. And food. The, the land was fertile. It was Edenic in nature. And so the imagery of likening the people of Israel to a vine or a vineyard is bound up in Edenic ideas. One of the key metaphors that God uses in the Old Testament to describe the people of Israel is his vine slash vineyard. Where he is... Where God is the vine dresser. And so it's not just a nice image. It's not just an image that begins in the book of Isaiah, for example. It's an image that begins in Genesis chapter 2 and carries forward. God's people are to be fruitful, multiply, fill and subdue the earth. We're to be like a vine that grows and fills the whole earth. And so when God uses language comparing his people to a vine or a vineyard... It speaks to a restored Garden of Eden because the people are like Eden, a restored and a redeemed people, a people who, unlike Adam, walk faithfully in covenant with God. Adam in the garden didn't. He was bad fruit because he ate the fruit, so to speak. And fruit in the Bible is likened to flourishing, not just in ever-expanding numbers, Uh, more and more grapes on the vine, but in every case, a expansion and a flourishing and a joy that comes with walking in God and his ways. So the vine image is meant to, to lead to flourishing. It's meant to be a beautiful image. It's why in John 15, Jesus ties it with his joy being given to his disciples. But... In the Old Testament, every instance, in each of the writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve, all of them refer to God's people, or in them God refers to his people as his vine, and in every single case, it is very, very bad. In every case that God speaks in the writing prophets of the nation of Israel being a vine, it is always words of judgment. They are like Adam of old. 
they are more of a wilderness and a dead branch than they are a flourishing garden. For example, if you would join me in Isaiah chapter 5, and we'll pick up in verse 1. We're going to read seven verses from Isaiah chapter 5. For example, listen to this leading salvo of words that God uses as he opens up the books of the prophets here. Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song. This is the Lord speaking. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns will grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He, the Lord, looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So God speaks through his prophets, and he opens here in Isaiah this image of God tenderly planting and doing all the hard work that was necessary to make this a fertile vineyard to yield grapes. He has his wine vat prepared. It's to be a source of joy, and instead the grapes are rotten, the grapes are wild, the grapes are worthless. And the spin is that these grapes and this vineyard is the people of Israel. It's the nation. And this bad fruit, the no fruit that is produced, is whereas God sat, as it were. The, the picture is that he's looking for justice to take place. And justice in the Bible is always covenant faithfulness. For people to be faithful to the covenant instead of justice, which is life-giving, they were life-taking bloodshed. And instead of being like God and embodying, for example, his Ten Commandments, his righteousness, there was an outcry against the people of Israel for how ungodly they were. And so when the people of Israel were brought into the land of Israel, and the land is described in Edenic terms, now the people of Israel are being described in that same uh, gardening Edenic language. But instead of being a new Eden and a new Edenic people, a new Adam, instead the people of Israel have proved to be just like old Eden and old Adam, ruining the whole thing with their sin. 
And think about the context of Isaiah. Isaiah, writing around 700 years before the birth of Christ, is speaking regarding every single generation, generation after generation, the people of Israel demonstrated that they were experts in breaking God's covenant. They were skilled at disobeying God's word. They refused to repent, even though God sent prophet after prophet. And even though God disciplined them, they still sinned more. And they were continually sinking their Old Testament faith with the surrounding pagan religions and ways and beliefs in the world. Now, even though God has always kept for himself a faithful remnant within Israel, the testament of the Old Testament, of the Old testament is that Israel was a false vine. That instead of spreading the knowledge of the glory of God across the earth as the vine of Israel would spread, they instead neither knew God nor his glory, were a dead vine, and misrepresented the good Lord in every way. And similar passages can be multiplied in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Hosea, and more. But I just want to show you Isaiah 5 as a leading salvo entry into this notion in the Old Testament. And so the question is, what would God do? He even rhetorically asks that question in Isaiah 5. What more can I do? And we would expect him to pluck out the vine and throw it away and burn it. But God says what he would do, for example, in Psalm 80. If you would join me over in Psalm 80. In Psalm 80, we have in many ways simply a repeat of what we have heard in the writing prophets, Isaiah 5. But Psalm 80 takes it a step further. Psalm 80, verses 8 through 18. Listen again. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade and mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Pause. You see that imagery? So the vine is dug up and dug out of Egypt and planted in the land of Israel, the new Eden. And here we see the people likened to this vine and they're growing and they're filling The land of Israel, such that even the vines themselves are encompassing and growing on the mighty cedars. It speaks of flourishing. It speaks of goodness. The branches are going to the sea and the shoots to the river. We see this expansion that almost evokes hope in our heart because Adam was supposed to expand the borders of the Garden of Eden until the Garden of Eden filled the earth. Adam didn't. Israel is God's son, and now Israel, as God's son, is in the land, and they're beginning to spread. Branches to the sea, shoots to the river. Will these branches expand to the ends of the earth? Verse 12 of Psalm 80. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, 
and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. And note this in verse 15. The stock that you, your right hand planted and for the son who you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. Verse 17. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. The son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is astounding. The psalmist begins, and, and this whole way through, the context is vine imagery. But then you notice that he's talking about the city of the people when he talks about the wall being broken down and more. So the, the metaphor gets a little bit mixed. The vine metaphor controls Psalm 80. He talks about the city. And then in verse 15, he said, the stalk that your right hand planted, right? That's the vine out of Egypt. For the son whom you've made strong for yourself. Now, in Exodus 4, God calls the whole people of Israel his son. After the burning bush, when Moses is sent back to Egypt, Moses is to tell Pharaoh, let my son go. So the people are personified as a son. So in verse 15, the stalk, the shoot, the branch, the stalk, the vine that you brought out of and planted out of Egypt, the stalk that you made, your right hand planted, and for the sun you've made strong for yourself. Sun language and vine language are married. Israel's God's son. But then verse 18 says, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. These are the bad guys who have come in or the boars and wild animals that have come in and ravaged God's vine. The vine is destroyed. So in verse 17, we're introduced to a new son. In verse 17, we're introduced to the son who we meet in Psalm 2. You can go read that on your own. In verse 17 of Psalm 80, thinking about this Old Testament vine language, he says, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. I understand this to be a second son, a new son, in this case, to be the promised Son of God. The Son is promised. A Son that God has His right hand on the Son of Man, God made strong. Here, the vine and divine sonship are intertwined. So Israel is a dead and horrible and judged vine. God promises a new Son linked with vine language. So here in Psalm 80, divine sonship and the vine are intertwined. And this goes a step further. Turn back, if you would, to Isaiah 27. 
in Isaiah 27, we have the opposite of what we read in Isaiah 5. So a little bit ago, we read Isaiah 5, and that's where God called heaven and earth to bear witness against his horrible vineyard that produced wild grapes. But now in Isaiah 27, this is a blessed passage. Something good is going to happen. Listen to verses 1 through 3, and then we'll read verse 6. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it, I keep it night and day. Down the verse 6. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Let's fit this together. In Isaiah 27, in that day, in verse 1, in that day, the pleasant vineyard, in that days to come, Jacob and Israel, fruit filling the whole earth, in that day is Bible speak. It is Bible language for all that would commence when the Messiah Christ arrived. Once God's promised Savior arrived on the scene, this is what would take place. The dragon would be slain. A vineyard would be planted by Yahweh. Yahweh would tend to that vineyard moment by moment so that no one could destroy it. And Jacob and Israel would blossom this vineyard and fill not just the land of Israel that we read in Psalm 80. It would now fill the entire earth. What does this all mean? What does it mean that Isaiah 5 told us Israel was a failed and dead vine? What does it mean that Psalm 80 married vine language with son language and promises a new son, the son of God's right hand, the son of man? And what does it mean in Isaiah 27 where in that day, that eschatological day when the Messiah Christ would come and all this would happen, what is going on? Israel, as a nation, was a failed and wicked vine. Even so, a new son would come as a new vine in himself. And this new vine, the new son arriving, would coincide with the defeat of the devil. Were you here last week? And would begin with Jacob and Israel. And from them, the vine would grow to fill the whole earth, which implies that the nations become branches on the vine. Who is this vine? Who is this son? Who is this one, this Messiah Christ promised to come? You know his name. 
It's Jesus. And Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the man of God's right hand. Jesus is the son of man, a favorite title of himself. Jesus is the true vine. As all of those I am statements that we brushed through in the beginning, looked back into the Old Testament, were pregnant with meaning and pointed forward to the promised Savior King. He has come. His name is Jesus. And Jesus is the true vine. For him, for Jesus to speak these words to the 11, the disciples, for Jesus to speak these true words to you and me, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. You are the branches. Those simple words are summarizing the entire hope and the entire story of the Old Testament in a few short phrases. And the more you know your Bible, and the more you know your Old Testament, where you can appreciate the splendor of what it means that Jesus is the true vine. When you say those words, when you read, I am the true vine, my father's the vine dresser, I am the vine, you are the branches, the entire Old Testament should flash before your eyes. And then you see the face of Jesus. Jesus is the new and true Son of God. For Jesus to say that he is the true vine means that Jesus, listen, Jesus himself is the new and true Israel. Hosea speaks of God giving a divorce certificate to Israel. Then later picks up the vine language and speaks of the same judgment language for them not producing grapes. And yet the son would take a bride, the church. Jesus is the new and true Israel. He is the true vine. That's why true is a penitent vine in Jesus' words. Jesus is the new and true Edenic vine. And that's why Jesus, an Israelite, and all his disciples, Israelites, and when the Spirit falls at Pentecost and Peter preaches the first sermon, and it's the thousands upon thousands who get saved are all Jews who now become the true vine in Christ. And then that vine expands through Matthew 28, taking the gospel to all nations, and therefore we are, think Romans, engrafted in, Romans chapter 11. Jesus is the new and true vine. Jesus has been God's expectation all along and his plan all along. And that's why the disciples did not need to be troubled. Because Jesus, living in their place, dying for theirs and our sins upon the cross, Jesus being buried was the seed of the vine planted so that when he rose from the grave in his resurrection, that vine would now spread to the ends of the earth. And that's why the Bible refers to Jesus as the last Adam, because Jesus is now doing what Adam should have done but couldn't and wouldn't. It's the whole gospel story summarized in simple words, I am the true vine. 
So the disciples were not to be troubled by Jesus leaving, and they're not to be troubled by their fears of hearing the, the uh, ruler of the world was coming to take Jesus, and their, their troubles were to be untroubled because Jesus said these things to give them peace and joy. Dear Christian, your peace and joy are bound up in knowing what it means and then embracing what it means that Jesus is the true vine. His father is the vine dresser and you are the branches. That is why if you are in Christ right now, abiding in him, you need not be troubled though the world assails you with troubles, but instead that you can walk through troubles with the joy and peace of Christ. Because there's not another vine that you're attached to. It's the vine of Christ. And the fruit that he bears, he bears through you. And so that leads then to our final brief point. What then is the gospel significance of Jesus being the true vine? There are many. I've just named some. And we will see more in coming weeks of why this is so utterly profound. But there are two gospel significances that I want to highlight in light of the grand sweep of the biblical story that we have surveyed. First, understand this. Jesus identifies with you. Jesus identifies with us. Jesus identifies with old Israel. What do I mean? For all of the brilliance of the Bible, for all of the literary artistry, biblical symmetry of the Edenic vine traced across Scripture, Jesus still came as an Edenic vine. In other words, Scripture paints a picture of solidarity. Perhaps if you were God and you planted a choice vine and the vine didn't do what you wanted to do, you would scrap it and go plant something else. But the beautiful identification here is that Jesus is still a vine. He's just the true vine in keeping with all the vine imagery from Adam on to Israel on to Jesus. It's like this. It's, it's like this for you, for what the writer or the preacher of Hebrews says of Jesus the preacher in Hebrews says that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, tempted as always as we are, yet without sin. So for Jesus to be a vine and not something uh, entirely different speaks of Jesus's, in this metaphor, of Jesus' representation, of his substitution, of his participation of your condition. The vine language is not just about getting saved. The vine language encompasses the entirety of the Christian life. And we saw last week that outside of Christ, every one of us is dead in our trespasses and sins. Every one of us is a dead vine, so to speak. None of us produces any fruit to the glory of God, no matter how hard we tried, though we didn't try. And yet here comes Jesus to be like us in every way, yet without sin, so that he would produce fruit. 
that he would obey the Lord, that he would do all that the Lord required on our behalf to save people like you and me. Because you could read the Bible and say, yeah, Israel was a worthless vine. I've read Judges, I've read uh, Kings and Chronicles, and I've read all of the prophets. I know how bad they were. Glad I'm not them. We're just like them. The point of the Bible is to show us in many ways how bad we are and how good God is to save a bad people like you and me. That's called grace, that he would put his love upon us. And so this speaks to Jesus being the true vine, the father, the vine dresser, and you, the branches, the fact that you can even say those words is an ocean full of grace poured out on you that the Father would desire to send His Son and the Son for the joy set before Him in the power of His Spirit, according to His Word, would die for you and rise for you, taking your sins on Himself, rising from the grave, so that for His joy He would graft you in as a forever branch in the vine of himself. One of the things that we're going to see that this imagery and metaphor that Jesus uses in John 15 on the vine is simply commentary on what he's been teaching already in John 13 and 14. And there he used the strained language, language of I, I and you and you and me and what does that mean? Now he's painting a picture of what that means. But the significance of Jesus being the true vine is that he identifies with us and our weakness. He's tempted in all the ways as you are, but he has overcome. He has not sinned. The vine imagery shows that Jesus still identifies with you. He is a sympathetic high priest, Hebrew goes on to tell us. And because of that, he sympathizes with you as a branch in him, who fights against ongoing sin, doubt, and more. Jesus didn't just live in our place, die for our sins, and rise and leave to leave you. He lived, died, and rose in your place to bring you to himself so that you would now drive your life, assurance, and security in him. That's one thing. That's one gospel significance of Jesus being the true vine and secondly and finally, Jesus being the true vine reveals the eternal quality of Jesus himself. In other words, what kind of God is this? What kind of God is this who would exercise long suffering and patience year after year, generation after generation with a people who excelled at not glorifying him and disobeying him. What kind of God is this who himself would step in, clothe himself in human flesh as the last Adam, as the true vine, as the true Israel, as the true divine son of God, truly God and truly man. What kind of God is this who would save a people like you and me, who would love us? It's the only God there is. He's the only option you have. Praise God. Jesus is the faithful son where you were faithless. Jesus is true where you and I are false. 
Jesus' fruit-bearing where we have been dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus is everything Israel wasn't. Jesus is everything you aren't, couldn't, and wouldn't be. Praise God. The quality of the Savior is he is the true vine. The only one there ever is and will be, Jesus is the true vine. He is everything. He obeyed God's covenant perfectly. He is loyal in his love to the Father, as we saw last week. Jesus is everything you aren't, and therefore can alone be your glorious Savior, and therefore you can actually be saved. And to be a branch in him then, filled with his word, filled with his spirit, the Father prunes us to share in the qualities of this good God named Jesus, God the Son incarnate. The gospel of the true vine identifies that Jesus identifies with us, and the gospel of the true vine shows the eternal quality of our Savior and King. Jesus compels us today to remain in him, to recognize that we draw life from him continually even now. And his word and his spirit are the active agents in your lives right now and forever, to yield good fruit to the glory of the Father. And if you don't know Christ, today is the day. If you don't know Christ, now is the time. Bow the knee to Jesus. Swear fealty to him. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ for a fruitful life forevermore. Church, Jesus is the true vine. The Father's the vine dresser. You are the branches. Abide in him. Amen? Father, thank you for the gift of the true vine. Thank you, Father, for the gift of the reality that you are the vine dresser. And that thank you for the gift of being the branches. We pray, Lord, that this gospel story would so rivet our souls that we can't help, we can't even take our minds off the glory of Christ, of being the true vine, our champion, hero, and king, the true and last Adam in whom we can abide. So Lord, now would you open our mouths to simply respond to you in worship, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Friends, let's stand and sing this song, and then I'll come back up to lead us to the Lord's table.